Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. We are your hosts, Rachel Green and Danielle Guntaliki. This episode is part two of our series around having difficult conversations. We hear from Adam Tullock, the Chief Executive of Total Insight Theatre, an award-winning charity that uses the art to transform the lives of children and young people. He is a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts, appeared in the Big Issues Top 100 Changemakers 2020, and was highly commended as Children and Young People's Champion in the 2020 Children and Young People Now Awards. We're also joined by Hannah Wilson, who is a leadership and development consultant, coach and trainer, who specialises in diversity, equity and inclusion. She is the founder and director of Diverse Educators, who work towards creating spaces where you are celebrated, not tolerated. They want to address the lack of space for those with intersectional identities and provide training to develop and support diversity and inclusion work. In this episode, we explore allyship across social justice areas, what action looks like and the ways in which we can engage and develop this work. This episode looks at how organisations and individuals can become allies. It considers taking action with little resource and the complexity surrounding neutrality. Both Hannah and Adam share their advice, expertise, including what being an ally looks like to them. This conversation builds on part one as it continues to explore lived experience, vulnerability and how to make positive changes. Hi both and welcome to our podcast. Um, I wonder if you'd briefly share a bit more about yourselves, the work you do and why you're passionate about this work. And can we start with Adam? Yeah, so I'm Adam Tallett and I'm the founder and chief executive Total Insight Theatre. Total Insight Theatre is a charity that uses the arts to transform the lives of children and young people. And we do that through a variety of methods, including creative programmes, film, theatre and workshops. Amazing. Thank you. And Hannah? I taught um, English and drama for 20 years in secondary schools, mainly in South London. And then I relocated to Oxfordshire to be a head teacher of two startup schools. And I stopped doing that um, just, as, just as, a, as the pandemic struck. I decided to go independent and start my own business. And my heart was in my mouth for a while when I was thinking, goodness me, what have I done with my career? Um, but I now run diversity, equity and inclusion training um, for schools and academy groups. That's amazing. Thank you both. Um, So we wondered, what does allyship mean to you and how do we create spaces to encourage the exploration of intersectionality and privilege? Hannah, do you want to go first? I was going to say, I wasn't sure. I'm happy to go first. Well, big question, um, Rachel. There's lots to unpack um, in that question. So for me, allyship is recognising the fact that I don't have an intersectional identity. So if, if you think about the Equalities Act of 2010 and the protected characteristics, I have got a lot of privilege when you look at the protected characteristics and lived experiences, but that doesn't mean I can't be part of the conversations and part of the change that's needed. And I think part of the problems over the last sort of like 12 to 18 months have been a lot of people have been like immobilised because they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And I'm all about sort of like being active and sort of like being part of the solution. And being an ally is recognising that there's a collective responsibility here about the things that are wrong in society, the things that are wrong in our institutions. And we can't be passive um, and we can't rely on the people with the lived experience who are potentially being oppressed and marginalised and discriminated against to be the people to raise their voices about what's wrong 
in an organization. So I see part of my responsibility is actually sort of like seeing it, observing it, articulating it, but also being part of the challenge to the things that we need to see change. Brilliant. And, and just to build on that, um, and just to really in a nutshell, just just because I'm aware there might be some listeners and it, you know, it might be the first time that they've heard of the word, you know, allyship and um, being an ally. So just to give a really sort of general overview of what it is, and essentially it's someone who actively promotes a culture of inclusion through intentional, positive and conscious efforts that benefit people as a whole. Um, and in terms of in the workplace, it means recognising the privilege that members of majority groups have in a professional context and using that privilege to aid in the dismantling of systems and processes that prevent colleagues from having equal opportunities. Um, and I just wanted to put that in there just because I just know there are some people and it might be the first time that they've heard of that and they think, well, what is that? So that's, mm. that's what it is. Brilliant. Thank you both. That was really, yeah, I think unpacking the words really important as well, isn't it? Language. Um, I suppose the next question um, links quite closely to um, what Hannah was actually just mentioning, what you both mentioning about are we beyond a time and space whereby being neutral is appropriate and acceptable? And then also um, just to kind of build on that, how can employees manage resistance or hesitation from leadership and boards? Do you want to get first, Adam, this time? Yeah, of course I can. <laughs> um, so in terms of that, um, you know, neutrality, you know, um, are we beyond a space where being neutral is appropriate um, and, and can be in silence, uh, you know, be complicit? Of course it can. And I think there's some really clear cut issues, um, you know, where we probably all agree there's a right and a wrong side to be on. Um, you know, and a really clear current example of that was the backlash that you know, black players on the England team received after the Euros. You know, we can all agree that that's wrong. You know, on the other hand, um, you know, however, how, you know, as an organisation, you know, or I mean, how do you accept that some issues might, that might be less, you know, contentious, you might need to stay neutral as an organisation, as, as not to alienate your beneficiaries, because we won't always agree. Um, and the question is, how do you decide and who decides which situation you're in? For me, Total Insight Theatre, it's been about listening to, for us, our young people and taking the lead from them. You know, we have real diversity in opinion um, and experience at all levels in the organisation. And that's from trustees, to volunteers, to staff, and of course, the young people. Um, and that's really a good way of, to gauge where you might need to speak out. Equally, it's a good way to gauge when, again, your actions might speak louder than words. Um, and I think there are some really good recent examples where we've seen that actually it's actions that are speaking louder than words. And that's actually what people want to see. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Neutrality, because some people are quite comfortable in that neutral space. I'd say I don't, I don't do neutrality very well. I probably need to learn how to do it a bit better, because like you were saying that, Adam, about navigating these conversations with stakeholder groups. But one of the um, expressions we used to use for our young people when I was a school leader was we want, we want people to be upstanders, not bystanders. And I think that's similar for us as adults, which I mean, Everyone can see what's happening in the world, but are we all just going to sit there quietly watching our TVs, talking about it, or are we going to actually be part of the actions, as Adam said, but we're thinking about what's the bit that I can do differently? What's the bit that I can have conversations about? How can I challenge in a micro way some of those things in my circles? Because then collectively that, that creates quite a lot of change. So I mean, my thing about neutrality is I think it's people sitting on the fence sometimes, and I think it's people waiting for other people to lean in and do something. And I've always been someone who's put my head above the parapet and, and, and received the critique for that. 
but we need more people to do that. But but in defence of that, I also know that I got myself into trouble regularly when I was employed for raising my voice, for raising my head, for challenging behaviours. I now work independently, so I've got the privilege of perhaps not having a boss. I am my own boss, so I can perhaps articulate things without worrying about the fallout. So, so there's there's lots of different layers there. People like power dynamics to perhaps be aware of. And I think I think that's a great point. And and it's really difficult, especially when we're talking about you know volunteers or or staff in an organisation. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because you know we often you know look you know put the onus on you know in volunteers and look for the change you know for them to be driving the change. But actually, if there's no movement on the top, you know there is a question of how likely are you to succeed with that. Um, you know, and equally, you know, as Hannah, you were saying, you know, as the employee or, or the volunteer, you know, it puts you in a situation where you might be alienated at work, at worst, you might be penalised, and, and, you know, it's going to be some really harsh personal consequences, potentially, for you, you know, you might be unemployed, or, you know, it puts the individual in a really difficult choice, um, and, and that's something that, you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge, um, that there is a cost to the individual, um, you know, who doesn't hold the power themselves. Um, I know, you know, I've got a, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, a lady in her 50s who's a single mum and, you know, um, at work has been dealing with similar things and, you know, has been constantly trying to, you know, make change happen and drive it forward. But it's constantly coming against walls and, you know, that person, they can't, you know, continue doing that because it might, you know, for that, that individual result in unemployment and they don't have, you know, a large amount of savings or anything like that so it's a very difficult situation to be in um so I, you know that's just yeah my take on it well but isn't that the point though Adam, about it being allies and not ally like we're talking here about collective aren't we and and sort of like finding other people who care who want to affect change and doing it together because it shouldn't be one person one voice one action you're not going to have a massive effect size if it's just one person sort of like banging the equity and inclusion drum so Perhaps that's where it, it's it's strength in numbers, isn't it? And power in yeah. finding the people who care about the same things as you care about, perhaps. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's finding a, you know, building that trust and, and finding those spaces for conversation. Um, you know, because it is difficult to speak out. You know, but it's finding opportunities and building that trust um, and having different points of contact in organisations that you can, you know, come and talk to and. Um, you know, and really seeing the value in different life experiences that people bring to an organisation. Um, so it is easy to have these conversations and approach people with them. Thank you. I think you guys have, um, yeah, really explored that. I suppose um, from part one of the series, because you guys obviously, um, as you're aware, this is part two, um, we kind of looked at the the need for like leadership to be quite vulnerable. That came up quite a lot. Um, so I guess there's a question, you guys have touched on it slightly in terms of um, the risk that I suppose employees might take and volunteers might take. So I wonder if there's any advice that you might give um, for employees and volunteers if they want to kind of shift that leadership and, and say, how do we make this their problem too? And how do we get this on the agenda um, and kind of manage, like you say, that resistance? But also, I suppose, as we said before, that expectation that neutrality sometimes is the line you have to the hold within your charity or within schools and things so um yeah I wonder if we could get your thoughts should I go I can see you processing the question can I just take up the first part of the question maybe about the thinking about why and how leaders become vulnerable because for me the shift is the fact that 
leaders need to recognize they don't know it all and they haven't experienced it all and in my sector in education diversity in leadership at the executive levels so we're, we're massively underrepresented when it comes to ceos executive heads head teachers we've got a disproportionately high number of, of, of white straight men for example in those spaces so you then have kind of like governing bodies, SLTs, MAP boards, um, executive teams who haven't got diversity in their lived experience and they're used to holding the power and they're used to they perhaps take for granted some of the privilege they have. And part of the journey, I believe, of an ally is actually increasing your self-awareness and recognising that and putting yourself into spaces, as Aaron said, Adam said, sorry, where you listen and you learn from people who perhaps are lower down the hierarchy from you. Who and and for me, it's about sort of like inverting or disrupting the the, the power structures in an organisation where you're learning from people's experience from the people you perhaps don't normally sort of like aren't normally part of your circle. And that can feel quite vulnerable and that can feel quite disconcerting because perhaps you're not used to operating like that. But that's where the learning happens. And the leaders who I'm seeing doing that in a very authentic, vulnerable way very open, very honest about not having all the answers, but being curious, but also being listeners. They're the ones who are making headway in this space. But that takes, a, and that's a big ask of a lot of leaders to actually lean into that vulnerability. I think, I think that's a brilliant point. And just to build on what Hannah said, um, you know, one thing that, you know, has been mentioned quite a lot recently is leaders becoming real models and not role models. Um, you know, and I think that's really important. Often, you know, you think of, you know, traditionally leaders have, you know, just, you know, strive to be a wrong, but actually it's being a real model and actually showing your vulnerability and actually using it. Um, and I also think there's a question of valuing lived experience as well. Um, and I think we need to acknowledge that in the set. So, you know, what, you know, what are the benefits of lived experience? Because there are loads of them. So it's valuing that and, and championing that as well and amplifying voices that we don't normally hear from, as, as, as Hannah was saying. There's a great example of that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the Black Association of Social Workers. So, so Wayne Reed and a group of colleagues for the last sort of like 12 to 18 months, they've, they've gathered a number of people of colour who work in social care, who feel underrepresented, feel unheard. And they, they came together, created a space and created a series of activities. And then they've published an anthology of their of their lived experiences, but in a very, very diverse way. So some are poems, some are songs, some are stories. And I went to the launch event of that book. I think it was back in January now. And that was just fascinating, looking at how these individuals from all over the country working in different spaces have come together and created strength through unity and that kind of that solidarity. And together their voices are a lot louder. And just the anthology captures such such a spectrum of experiences. You can't then deny it's happened to one person because there's there's so much kind of like noise there in the book. So I think that's a good example of, of one sector and how they've perhaps come together to navigate that space. Building on that, so from the previous episode, we spoke about lived experience slightly, but we also looked at how that puts the onus on people that are marginalised or those groups that are not being looked at. So I wonder if there's anything that as much as we need to create space to value lived experience and for those voices to be heard, but also that kind of needs to come hand in hand with something else. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. I think that's really interesting. I, you know, just one thing I would add is actually when I, you know, talk about lived experience, I, you know, it's, I think it's really important that we actually talk about lived experience at leadership level as well, which is often 
not done. You know, people talk about lived experience and saying, okay, you know, I've got, you know, a new staff member who, who maybe is slightly lower down, you know, the pecking order. They say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm using lived experience, so I value. And actually that's not valuing lived experience. That, you know, is just, you know, trying to pretend that you are valuing it. So I'm, you know, talking, talking, talking about lived experience at leadership level, um, you know, where objectives are set. And I think actually, if you can embed lived experience at that level, that will, you know, improve your strategy. It will affect the way you're delivering your services. It will affect your culture. Um, you know, and that will really show you're committed to, to social justice, you know, and the aims that you, you want to achieve. I'll just add to that, that. So one of the things that I'm kind of navigating through the work I do, and, and it's become a real trend in the last um, sort of two academic years, is the fact that in the wake of George Floyd's murder, a number of schools and trusts have put out their statements of intent about their commitment to DEI. Um, and then they have kind of like gathered somebody to, to lead this work. And what's happened um, repeatedly is that the organisation has gone to the person with lived experience. So it might be the only black person who's a male leader or the only Muslim woman or the only whatever label we're talking about. Like they've, they've suddenly valued diversity because that, that diversity is now going to bring value to the organisation. But what's exasperated the situation is that it's, they've not been recognised, those individuals, for all their other expertise and experience. It's just their protected characteristic that's getting them the role. So they then feel completely compromised. And I've, I've literally had like this trench load of people um, approaching me um, last summer. Like they felt in some ways seen and recognised because they're being offered a leadership role, but at the same time, very frustrated and very compromised. It was only because of their lived experience that they were being recognised, compounded by the fact that a number of them weren't being offered any extra money or time. So we know you care about diversity, equity, inclusion. We know you've got lived experience. Would you like to do it for free? Would you like to do it from the heart for the next year? Like that role is so big, but then they don't think they can say no because then no one else is going to do it. And there's just this, just this messiness of it all. So one of the things that I'm involved in is that a colleague and I um, created a programme to support the diversity, equity, inclusion leader in schools. And they get a year's programme, 10 sessions. And part of that is we've got a recruitment pack to go back to the school about how to frame a role. And we're banging the drum about the fact that these roles need to be remunerated. They need to be formally appointed. And that's a shift I would really like to see in the sector, that we're valuing and recognising diversity, but for more than just the identity of the individual, for the skills that person brings and the work they're going to lead within the organisation as well. Is that happening in other sectors? Have you, have you seen this, Adam, in, in your kind of spaces or not? I haven't massively, no, um, but that, that sounds really interesting. It's not something I, I've seen um, quite a lot, but no, that does sound fantastic. And I, you know, I look forward to actually to following up with that and actually having a look and seeing that because that is, yeah, that is fantastic work. Mm, thank you both. I think that was really interesting to actually explore lived experience in a bit more that pro, both pros and cons, like you say, like the value that needs to be ascribed to it. Um, I suppose um, just to follow on from that, I guess there's a question around what kind of resource and commitment does allyship and working towards allyship require? So obviously both the education sector and charity sector are widely known not to have that much resource. So how do we resource this work or what's required? So, so for me, I mean, I've worked in schools with deficit budgets where I've been in charge of professional learning and with failing schools and something needs to be sorted. So I do appreciate that having a budget and having resource is kind of like the gold standard, but I think there are ways and means of doing it regardless of, of your resources. So for me, 
like things that I encourage schools to do is like think about your your staff library so that you like think about curated reading where you're either all reading the same book at the same time and having a conversation once a month or every couple of months about a book or you've got like 10 books that you've decided you're going to read as a team and you've got one copy of each and you take it in turn so for me that thought leadership piece and leading into reading things that aren't the things you normally read and learning from either people who are showing their lived experience or sort of like leadership around inclusive behaviours, inclusive language. I've read four books this summer around inclusive allyship. Like there's some great books out there and, and you can then disseminate that. So I think reading's key. The second one is networking. So don't, we tend to network with people who look like us and do roles like us and who we have some sort of resonance with. And I think deliberately diversifying your network. So thinking about who you're following on Twitter and sort of expanding your reach and following people perhaps with a slightly different skill set or background to you. Similarly on LinkedIn, so I, I learn loads just by following people, engaging in conversations, and then perhaps reading an article or blog that wouldn't have been on my radar because, I, because someone shared it. So reading, following, listening. And then there are so many free events. Like literally, if you go onto Eventbrite and put in diversity, equity, inclusion, there are so many events. Some of them are ticketed and expensive, but there's a lot of free ones. And in, in education, the grassroots scene is massive. So seven years ago, I was one of the co-founders of Women Ed, and we've now got like 20 countries and 35,000 members who are running free events all the time for women in leadership. And I get emails all the time from like nurses and social workers and charity workers say, can we come? Like, yeah, it's fine. It's free. Like, I don't care if you're a teacher or not. If you care about the topic, come. And then off the back of Women Ed, BAME Ed launched, LGBT Ed launched and Disability Ed launched. So there's four spaces there, like affinity groups, networks, with those protected characteristics. And then we launched Diverse Ed um, as an intersectional space because a number of people in my network belong to multiple affinity groups and you need to have one conversation with your one human being. So we, last year, ran, I don't know, it's ridiculous, like 25 virtual events and they were all free and they were all wholly accessible and they were all recorded and they're all on our website. So there's like 45 hours of free training on our website that anyone can access and watch. So for me, it's about like creating the time and the reflection space, but also thinking about, it's not about how much money you're spending or what course you're going. It's about inserting yourself into spaces to hear things you wouldn't normally hear. And that then develops the thinking, which then begins to change the behavior. That's brilliant. And just to build on that, it, it's conversations I think are going to be key. So as you say, expanding your network, conversations, using Twitter, Instagram, you know, there's lots on there that you can do. And again, it's different. There are different organisations with different budgets. You know, there are large organisations that do have budgets. So it's about using that to make genuine actions and not just following trends for the sake of it. So looking at, you know, is there a speaker I can invite in to speak to my workplace about my lived experience or about, you know, actions that we can do as an organisation? So it's valuing it and seeing the importance in it um, and doing it. And also looking at other resources, having a read of those, and just stepping outside of your box, but really importantly, making genuine actions rather than, you know, statements that are, you know, empty, um, you know, really. And seeing it as a long-term commitment as well, not just, oh, well, I, I've seen that, so I'm going to comment on that or I'm going to do that because other people have done it. You know, you know realising that, you, you know, what you do might be different to somebody else, and that's okay. You don't have to follow everybody else. So it's believing in what you're doing for the long term um, mm. and owning that. I think that's so true. I think um, it came up in um, part one as well about that need to to take time and make space to continually do the work. It's not actually going to be 
quick and it's not going to be tomorrow. And I think like you mentioned earlier about um, the George Floyd murder last year, and there was lots of instant reactions from organisations saying we're going to do this we're this and we're that. And it's actually that question of how much did they understand what that meant and what does it look like? Um, which is quite difficult as well, I think, because there is actually maybe more of an appreciation now for the urgency that a delay in doing the work is directly affecting people. So it's kind of a delicate balance of, um, yeah, how do you how do you find that time and space and but then act urgently in what you're doing? I would say immerse yourself as much as possible. <laughs> you know, as Adam was saying, read as much as you can, you know, just absorb yourself in as much as possible and reach out and don't be afraid to reach out and have a conversation with somebody um, so you can understand what's going on and why that person might feel that way or what change you can make. And um, because again, it's different for, for each person, but definitely immerse yourself as much as possible. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. And, and that two of the mantras that we use, um, firstly, like you need to do the inner work before you can do the outer work. I think so many people just wanted to be to be active but also to be seen to be active and actually that can feel really inauthentic and really insincere and I encourage anyone in any of our events or any of our programs like take the time to reflect take the time to do the digging deep inside do the reading do the listening process the thoughts before you start like showing up blogging talking at events doing the behaviors because you could send out really really mixed signals or be really really inconsistent so inner work first, outer work second. And our, and our follow-up to that is like, part of that vulnerability is you have to accept that you're gonna be uncomfortable. I mean, the, disc, the levels of discomfort for allyship is really quite, quite there because you're gonna be hearing things you don't wanna hear. You're gonna be sort of like finding out people's stories of, of sexism, racism, homophobia in your workplace, which you probably didn't think existed until you asked those questions. So that there's a piece there about being ready to to open that can of worms because a, a lot's going to come out and you're gonna and you're gonna have to catch it and process that and I think that's that's where some of some of the fear kind of kicks in um and I think we need to recognize the fact there's a lot of fear inhibiting people from being allies and and how can we build the confidence and the competence for everybody to step up and and to be an ally rather than relying on the two or three people in the room to do it I think that's that what you talk that collective action, that shared responsibility, absolutely vital. Amazing, thank you both. That's such useful um, kind of reflections. Um, and kind of following on from that, um, I think just to kind of conclude all of the points is um, what piece of advice would you offer to anyone listening who wants to become an ally or further change within their workplace? Um, you know, it's kind of, um, we know it's collective action that everyone needs to understand and take action and understanding privilege and power um, and different roles everyone has to play. Um, but I wondered if you had um, any further advice. Mm. Can I just add to that? Because one of the phrases the listeners need to be aware of or the concept is around performative allyship and the fact that we've got organisations and individuals performing as allies but they're not necessarily really fully committed to the allyship work. And I, if I give an example of that, I mean, I've been in meetings and spaces that aren't diverse and the conversation is very different than when somebody walks into the room with lived experience and then suddenly people are sort of like speaking out on things because they've got an audience. And I think we've got to be really, really careful about that. And we have to call it out. This is a consistent commitment. It doesn't matter who's in the room. 
um like my, my similar analogy is like as a teacher like kids would pick up litter when I was watching them but they'd walk past the litter when I wasn't watching them like that's not good enough it needs to be we're doing the right thing all the time regardless of who's in the audience like Adam is do you want to add anything about performative allyship no I was just going to say and the, you know there's a great example um you know with the squares that people did on Twitter I don't know if you remember you know everybody put a, a black square on on Twitter and then you know even now people are having a conversation around what's actually been done you know uh-huh. so it's and it's really important to just listen to people. I mean, it sounds easy, doesn't it? But just sometimes just listen because actually you'll find out what different people need and then you'll understand it a bit better rather than, as you say, performing and saying, oh, well, you know, this or I think this is good. Or, I'm following fashion by doing this. Just take the time, mm. absorb yourself, listen. You know, sometimes just listening before you act can, you know, be more valuable. And, and ask actually, better, you know. sorry, sorry, I was going to say ask <laughs> no, better no, questions. No. Ask better questions yeah. as well. Like, I can't see told well we asked the question and no one told us well you didn't ask the right question to the right person at the right time ask a better question so for me it's about sort of like approaching all of this with with curiosity and openness and willingness like you said to listen and to learn and and quite often these conversations are organic but if you're not in a psychology safe organization and people don't trust you they're not going to give you a true depiction of what's been going on anyway and that's so for me the culture that holds all of this work is absolutely vital. Yeah, no, I, I think that's so true. And it, it's just understanding that it is difficult. You know, if you want people to come into a room and, and share their story or talk about, you know, their experience, it is difficult. It's very challenging for people, you know, it's even traumatic for people to do that. So it's, you know, really understanding that and, you know, how, you know, thinking what makes somebody, why would somebody want to come forward and share their experience to me? You know, it's making, you know, make genuine, making it genuine. Um, and I think that goes a long way. You know, if people feel it's genuine, they want to come and have the conversation. If people don't think it's genuine, they don't think it's going to have an impact, they're not going to do it. Thank you. Um, and then I guess the one of our final questions is, what lessons have you personally learned from doing this work? I, I personally, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, it's no secret, I'm a big champion of, of lived experience um, leadership. And, you know, we've done that total impact here so you know our board is very very diverse so, you know we've got young trustees we try and embed new voices and we really value um lived experience um and i've actually learned that you know it keeps us ahead of the curve because actually if you don't embed different voices at every level of the organization you're just missing out because there's so much value so much impact that you get from having so many different people in the same room mm. and I'd, I'd add to that like I, was, I was an English teacher, so for me, it's all about the language. And I think one of the barriers to, to leaning into these conversations and to being an inclusive ally is there's, there's so much jargon and there's so many acronyms and there's so many buzzwords and there's so many labels. You can get really bogged down in that. And, and one, of my, one of my mishaps or one of my kind of my learning experiences was that you can't assume what label people use. You have to ask. So if we think about race as an example, like in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I was in so many different conversation spaces where every space, women would self-identify in different ways. In some spaces, they were black and brown women. In the next one, they were women of colour, people of colour. Like, so I can't assume that this label that I use is going to be okay for everybody in that massive group of that identity. So I think we've got to be really careful about language and we need to let people tell us what what pronouns they want to use, what label they use to self-identify their race, their gender, whatever. And then going back to what Adam's point was, like we need to recognise that each person's lived experience is individual. 
and and we and we can't make assumptions about a whole group based on one person's one person's story and I think that can be a massive problem that just because you've had one person from the LGBTQI community come and do a talk to your whole organization that one voice doesn't represent every person's lived experience in that wider group and I think people then begin to like compartmentalize or label people or make assumptions about people so language and assumptions and individual individual learning stories I think are the kind of the key things for me. Amazing thank you um, and then just finally um, is there anything else you would like to share that you haven't had the chance to? I, I would just add that even in this kind of collective term of ally or allyship it can be broken down for different groups. So, I mean, there's different ally terms for different groups. So, as a feminist, if a man is sort of like negotiating gender pay gap in my school, he's a he for she ally because he's leaning into feminist conversations. As a white person who who leans into anti-racist work, I might get called a white ally. So, there's so many like different labels, and I think it's not about you're either an ally or not an ally. Every single one of us can be an ally to an identity we don't hold. And I think that's, I think that's the bit that people don't get, that it's not about all the straight white men with privilege or perceived privilege being an ally to everybody else in the world, because actually, A, we can't see whether they've got privilege or not. They might have invisible identities we don't know about. But if we all were just better human beings for each other, if we were just all allies for people with a different identity and lived experience to ourselves, then that would really shift things personally is what I believe. That's about it. I, the only thing I would add is, you know, everybody could be an ally. And I go back to, you know, what I said earlier when I, you know, broke it down, you know, because again, not everybody, you know, we, we use big words and, you know, there's a lot of jargon, you know, like, like simply someone, you know, somebody who actively promotes a culture of inclusion through intentional, positive and conscious efforts that benefit people as a whole. Um, you know, I think everybody can can do that. Brilliant. Thank you both so much. I think it was, yeah, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, covered a whole array of topics and areas and bits of work. So, yeah, I think it'll be really, really useful to add to the to the series. No Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you again to Adam and Hannah for joining us for this episode about how to be an ally and getting your team on board. And thank you to my co-host, Rachel. We hope you found it informative and inspiring in the same way that we did. It was particularly interesting to hear about the learnings of both guests and the need to stay curious in a way that leads to genuine intention and investment in doing the work. It was also noted that similarly to our previous conversation with John and Lily in part one, that we need to be open to exploring power and privilege in the varying forms that it comes in. And finally, anyone can be an ally, and for effective social change and inclusion, it requires us all. The next episode in the series will look at being okay with getting things wrong and making genuine changes. We hope you'll join us. But for now, thank you for taking the time and listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. You can check it out at charitychat.org.uk. And Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out now. Thank you and take care.